1 Corinthians 15, 29-34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Let's pray one more time. Lord, apart from the work of your Holy Spirit opening our hearts, shaping us and transforming us, this whole study is pointless. It's absolutely futile. And so may we now surrender to the work of your Holy Spirit. May we seek your face as an act of worship. May we lay down our lives and may we expect in this moment to be spoken to by you. We believe, Father, as we open this book, that the Holy Spirit takes in a deep breath and breathes out communication with his people. And so now, Lord, comfort your saints. Convict and call sinners unto repentance. Bring mercy, bring joy. And Father, in the power of the resurrection, may you give us such radically reoriented lives that this world and its fading glory would no longer be front and center, but that the future, the hope of eternal life would come into this present place in this present moment. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. The resurrection we have celebrated as of last Easter. So the question is, now what? We believe Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. So now what? In the city of Corinth, Paul was correcting the bad behavior of the Christians in that city. And their bad behavior was rooted in bad belief. Today, though, we're looking at Christian behavior that was a little bit strange. They were being baptized for the dead. We don't know exactly why they were doing that. But what we do know is that the Corinthians, or at least this select group of Corinthians, were behaving in such a way, though a little bit strange, as if the resurrection were real. In other words, the Corinthians' behavior was motivated by and directed by their belief in the resurrection. Not only the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the resurrection of their own bodies from the dead. They believed that there was a coming day when all the dead would be raised from the grave, and that future day that they believed in affected their present behavior. 
So we can't spend a lot of time this morning on verse 29. For every scholar that I read, there was 20 different opinions on what in the world the Corinthian church was doing in being baptized for the dead. I'm of the opinion that they were pagans who had come out of pagan shamanism and magic rituals. And when they were introduced to the spiritual practice of of baptism, they wrongly believed that baptism had some sort of magic effect on those who had already died. And so by proxy, in the name of saving those who had already gone into the grave before them, they believed that if they were baptized on their behalf, it would have some sort of meritorious effect on their dead one's eternal state. We can't be sure of that. That's the position that I hold. And Paul here doesn't take enough time to actually correct their behavior. But what he does in this little parentheses here in 1 Corinthians 15 is he raises the question, if the dead aren't raised, why are you behaving this way? And the point that he wants to make and the point that I want to draw to the attention of all of us this morning is this question. Do you today and this week and in your past and in the future days that God gives you, are you behaving as if you believe that you will be resurrected from the dead? Are you and I behaving, living in light of the resurrection? Does the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of our own bodies from the grave affect the way that we think about the way we behave on a daily basis? There are two extreme perspectives in human life about the afterlife. One is that this life is all there is. And so all of your behavior is determined by this current day. You don't think about the future. You don't think about eternal life because there's really no such thing. All we have in front of us is what is in front of us today. So we need to live for today. The idea of being raised and being held accountable and being judged and eternal life, these things don't play a factor in the way that we make our decisions and our daily behavior in this one polarity of human perspective. And so, because all there is in front of us is today, there's a resulting need and greed and manipulation and thieving and murdering and stealing because I've got to get what I can get today because if I can get it today, then I'll finally be satisfied, I'll finally have meaning, I'll finally have significance because all there is in front of me is what is today, so I'll do whatever I can to get it. For those who focus on only this world, I must say that there's also a deep despair and a hopelessness, especially in the midst of suffering. For those who suffer in this world without a hope of a future world, there can only be despair. Imagine those today who are hungering and thirsting, living in poverty, war-torn, their children being chemically induced to horrific amounts of suffering. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if all they have is what is in front of them? War-torn, hunger, thirsting, death. Without a hope of anything in the future, how forsaken would you feel? 
And many in this world live in despair because they are suffering and there is no hope in their lives of a future glory, a future bliss, a future deliverance. Now, there's another polarity in human perspective when it comes to living in this world, and that is all we focus on is the future. There's a common uh, colloquial criticism of Christianity, and it goes something like this. Karl Marx would have agreed with this statement. They're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. We have our heads so in the clouds. We're looking so forward to the future that we forget that there are presently around us purposes that we are to fulfill. There are things that we are to be doing, healing that we are to be bringing, providing that we are to be giving, and all of these things, if our Hope is only, if our life is only vested in that future work of the resurrection, we can forget it. I would say that over the last hundred years or so, there was a subtle shift due to some teaching from the Bible that essentially taught this world is going to hell in a handbasket. Right before it literally enters into the apocalypse, Christians are going to be yanked out of here to escape the wrath to come. There are fine points in this theology. There are fine points in this teaching that we call eschatology. But what it did culturally in Christianity is it almost created a community of Christians who said, we're just going to hunker down and wait for the rapture. We're going to let the world go to hell in a handbasket while we hunker down in our cave and wait for Jesus to come get us and save us and deliver us from all of this bad stuff that's going on in the world. So heavenly minded, we became of no earthly good. Now, in the middle, between these two polarities of human perspective, between the all there is is today, which produces despair and greed and manipulation and murder because you got to get what you can get because all you've got is what you've got today, and so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good, just hunkered down in your Christian cave waiting for Jesus to come deliver you from all of the present troubles around you, but not producing any good in this world. There is the radically reoriented disciple of Jesus who lives his life already in light of the resurrection, awaiting the future resurrection. This Christian, this radically reoriented disciple of Jesus lives this present breaking in of the future in his daily existence while enduring suffering and struggle and pain, looking forward to that future deliverance. The radically reoriented Christian lives a radically resurrected life. The resurrection affects his and her behavior in the present and affects his and her belief in the future and helps determine how she, how he behaves in this world. What we are doing as radically reoriented disciples of Jesus who believe in the resurrection is we are essentially bringing the future that will be into the present. And believing in this future that will be being brought into the present gives us great strength to endure suffering, to endure the troubles, to bring healing to this world. What I want to do is walk you guys briefly this morning through three characteristics that Paul lists here. Three characteristics that are formed in our own hearts. Each of you are being invited to be given these characteristics that are formed not by a choice to behave in a certain way, but are created by your decision to believe in the resurrection. 
radical resurrection life supernaturally creates these three characteristics that God has us to walk in in this world. Characteristic number one, somebody who is living in the already not yet reality of the resurrection, somebody who is living in that, uh, in that both present moment and future moment of resurrection power has radical courage, radical courage rather than radical cowardice. Radical courage. Let's talk about this here. Notice in verses 30 and 32. Paul says to the Corinthian church, hey, why am I in danger every hour? We're going to talk a little bit here about Paul's life and what the man went through. He's asking the Corinthians there in verse 32, why, why was I courageous to fight with beasts? Why do you think that I faced all of these horrific things in my life? How do you think I did that, Corinthian church? And his answer to the Corinthian church is, I believe that even if I die, there's a future resurrection. And so Paul was granted a radical courage to face suffering, to face warfare, to face persecution. Because he believed that there was a life coming for him where in all of these distresses he would be utterly delivered from. But in the present moment, he was breaking in that future reality, that future peace, and nothing could stop him. He did not operate as a coward, but he operated with radical courage. Let me read a segment from Paul's autobiography that we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to this man's life. He says to the Corinthians, again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, speaking of these pseudo Christians, these pseudo-apostles. He says, are they servants of Christ? And then Paul says, courageously, I'm a better one. And then he goes on, he says, I'm talking like a madman. Now listen to this man's life. Paul says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in this city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things, there's this daily pressure on me of my worry for all of the churches. <laughs> Did you hear this man's life? Danger, 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 shipwreck, beatings, imprisonment, hunger, cold exposure. At some point, don't you think Paul would have said, could have said, maybe even should have said, this is stupid. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. I think possibly by the first shipwreck, I'd be like, I'm out. I'm going to go find a cruise ship. I'm going to the beach. I'm going to have a little drink with an umbrella in it. I'm going to chill out. This whole serving Jesus thing, I'm done. Why didn't Paul give up? This is why. Paul knew. Paul knew. He believed with all of his soul that he wasn't chasing some carrot of comforts and a perfect life that God wanted him to have in the present moment, that God just kept jerking it out of him. Here's the carrot, Paul. Oh, nope. I'm tricking you. Oh, nope, I'm not going to give you that care. Nope. Paul knew that the resurrection reality was his. The carrot was his. It was all his. Eternal life was his. And so he couldn't stop. 
comes shipwreck, abandonment, hunger, cold, exposure. With this radical courage, Paul said, until the day that I am with my king, I will serve, I will give with radical courage. Now, some of you may be saying, well, that was Paul. He was obviously wired with a bold personality. No, Paul was a theological professor. Think glasses, piles of books. He stumbled in his speech wasn't very good looking from what we understand of him in history. Had a little quick nose, probably bald, a little bit short. Paul wasn't some Fabio hero on the cover of a romance novel. Paul was some nerd sitting in a back corner with a candle lit and stacks of books around him. Not the guy that you run to saying, I need you to deliver me because you're so courageous. Something gave this nerd, a theology nerd, <laughs> radical courage. Radical courage. What was it? The most important thing that the resurrection gave Paul and you this morning, my dear sister, my dear brother, was the courage to face himself. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he says that his courage wasn't pride-filled. He wasn't Fabio on the cover of some romance novel. Paul knew that the resurrection assured him that though he was weak, though he was scared out of his mind, Though at times he would be tempted to cowardice, to bail out, to quit, to get angry, to get frustrated. I know if I was Paul, somewhere around the first part of that list that I read to you, I'd be like, hey God, I'm pretty angry about this. Paul knew he had courage to face all of those broken points in him because he knew the resurrection assured him of a fullness of life despite his brokenness. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, look, who's weak and I'm not the weakest? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant. And then Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The resurrection gave Paul such radical courage that he could boast in his inabilities, in his fears, in his hurts. He didn't have to put on a show. He didn't have to be chiseled Fabio with long flowing hair. He could be little theological nerd Paul being beaten, slammed, shipwrecked, and endangered, and say, by the way, this all makes me feel super weak and super incapable and super broken, and a lot of times I feel like I'm totally failing, and you know what? That's what I'm going to boast in. That's what I'm going to tell the world. I am weak. I am failing. I am scared because this makes much of the great courageous king who's alive and has assured me that though I may be scared and though I may be tempted to cowardice and though I may fail and though I may fall, I'm coming out of that grave alive. Radical courage is what you are invited to this week, Christian. Radical courage to face yourselves, not with shame. To face yourselves not in the name of fixing yourselves, but to become comfortable in your own broken, messed up skin. Because the resurrection gives you radical courage to do that. To boast about your brokenness, to boast about your weaknesses, to boast about your fears and your failures. Radical courage, as our lives are radically reoriented. The second facet here that Paul gives to the Corinthian church of a characteristic that is, come, is granted by believing in this resurrection power is a life of radical sacrifice. Radical sacrifice. Read with me here in verse 31, where Paul says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now listen to what he says. He says, I die every day. Through the history of the church, 
there were those who were so utterly persuaded by their belief in the resurrection of Jesus that they literally laid down their physical lives in sacrifice for the glory of God. Beginning in the first and second century, we have our brothers and sisters who had such a radically sacrificial life in in, in, in the present moment, in light of the future resurrection, that when they were put on the stake, they actually kissed the stake upon which they would be burned. I was thinking this past week of all the multitudes of missionaries that have gone forth into the world, and of one of the most famous is, of course, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott and his band of brothers flying airplanes into the, the rainforests of the Amazon, they penetrated in and found this tribe, the Aka Indians who killed them. In his journal prior to his death, prior to his martyrdom, Jim Elliot wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. Through the history of the church, we have seen Christians literally lay down their lives as an act of sacrifice because they believed that they would rise from the dead. Radical sacrifice. None of us in this room are going to be martyred by Aka Indians. Some in this room may be called to be martyred in the 1040 window. I know in Western Christianity, we just want to go watch the game this afternoon and not think about such heavy things. But it's a person like me that's called to just wipe off that veneer of pseudo-security. Some in this room are called to go and die in the 1040 window, martyred by Islamist terrorists. Do, you, do we know that this is happening all around the world today? I was just in England three weeks ago and met a man from Turkey. Showed me, a, showed me a letter from a man that had sent it to him the morning he was getting ready to preach with a picture of two swords. And the letter goes on to say, I'm going to cut off your daughter's legs and arms if you don't get out of my city with this blasphemous gospel of yours. And he told me, I received death threats Every single week. Radical sacrifice. And he said it with a smile on his face. I felt so silly I'd been sitting there complaining about our budget. Oh, our budget, we're not making budget. And he says, my daughter's arms may be cut off next week because I won't quit preaching the gospel. And you know what I know what this brother said to me as I was like sinking down in my seat, just like, I'm so sorry, I'm an American Christian. I'm such a, oh my gosh, give me a break. He says, Danny, look, the Lord knows how to bring the specific sufferings into our lives that will serve his purposes greatly. It just so happens that yours is a budget issue. That's a big deal to you. Mine is my daughter's arms being cut off. And then he says, don't diminish your sufferings, brother. We're all serving the same king. <laughs> this is radical. This is radical. This is who I want to be. I want this. I don't believe the resurrection like that, but... Oh, God, I want to. Now, because none of us are going to face this radical martyrdom, or some of us might face this radical martyrdom, we are all called to daily living sacrifices. Romans chapter 12, lay down your life as living sacrifices daily. We are to lay down our lives when we wake up and already think of ourselves as presently dead. All that I want in this world is already gone. I'm no fool to give up that which I cannot keep. 
to gain that which will never be taken from me with Jim Elliot. We say that daily. This is what Jesus was exhorting us to as his followers when he said, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What Jesus was saying there is, if you go out into this world and all you have is the perspective of this present world and you try to gain your life here, you're going to get as much as you can here. You're going to go as high as you can, get as much significance, as much money. All you're going to get in the end is you, which means you get your depression, your meaninglessness, your purposelessness, your anxiety, your fears, your brokenness. At the end of the day, when we live for only here, not sacrificing, but selfishly trying to get whatever we can, because all we've got is right now in front of us, at the end of the day, Jesus says, ultimately, you'll lose the very thing you're looking for. You'll lose it. But our loving Savior, who we follow, said to us, but if you give up your life, if you sacrifice for me, you will find yourself, your true self. You'll know meaning. You'll know purpose. The joy that you are so trying to grasp and get a hold of first comes by letting go, by saying, I don't need this. This radical daily sacrifice leads to a living service in this world, Christians, as we follow Jesus, a living service. What Paul was doing here when he was shipwrecked night and day, when he was facing dangers from Gentiles and then the city and from robbers, and when, what Paul was doing was he was serving the masses with the gospel. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in Manhattan, without question the most influential pastor, living pastor, living writer in my life currently, said this, the fact is the only way most of the evil and suffering and injustice of this world will ever be addressed is by people who have the freedom to risk everything. What was Keller saying there? In the early centuries of the church, culture was scandalized because Christians would go into the leper colonies and actually touch the lepers, not fearing getting the disease themselves. In the Middle Ages, the Black Plague, it was Christians who would go out and take the diseased and the dying into their homes to care for them because they were, they were willing to radically risk their own health in the name of bringing present life to the world in light of future resurrection. This radical service complemented by radical courage comes to play in our world. It takes courage to go and serve the homeless to touch the untouchables, to come into their midst. That takes a radical attitude of service that says, I can go into the midst of these people and I won't be tainted there, but I will bring life there. It takes a radical attitude of courage and service to say, I'm going to sacrifice my time and my comforts to serve my church, my church community. I'm going to take a radical step of courageous faith and I'm going to serve in Taproot Kids, that world of danger, <laughs> that world that's so scary, and it is downright scary. I'm scared to go back there. But if you have that radical courage with that radical servant's heart that says, I'm going to sacrifice my comforts, I'm going to take a courageous faith because I know that even if those little short two-foot-tall human beings kill me, I will be raised from the dead. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? This radical courage, this radical service, it reorients the way that we think about our comforts and the way that we think about our purposes and the way that we think about our jobs and the way that we think about our relationships. And then finally, this, this radical sacrifice 
complemented by this radical courage, leads to just living satisfied as Christians in this world. In another place, Paul tells the Philippian church, he says, I've learned how to be content in all things. He says, I've learned how to be content floating around in the water after a shipwreck. I've learned how to be content laying out in the rain, freezing my butt off. I've learned how to be content in danger. And he also says, I've learned how to be content when I have plenty, when all of my needs are met, when I've got a roof over my head. And he says, the secret for me is the strength that Jesus has supplied. For us, our discontent is rooted in our unbelief that we have all that we need right now. Right now. Without question, and again, I want to be careful about diminishing our sufferings, but without question, we are the most affluent people that have ever walked in the history of humanity on this planet. And we are more discontent and more covetous than we have ever been. And for Christians, it is because we do not believe that our eternal treasures are real. Again, another illustration that I found helpful this week in my reading if you have a million, let's just say, let's just, let's say you have a million dollars in the bank and you're walking down the street, you have 75 cents in your pocket and the homeless guy says, can I have that 75 cents? And you, you know that you have a, you know that you have a million dollars in the bank. You can tap into it. Do you struggle? Are you, are you, are you, are you scroogey in the sense of, mm, I don't know, 75 cents, that's a lot of money. If I can go buy dope with this. <laughs> no. If you got, you're, you're liberate. I can give you 75 cents. You go buy dope with it, that's on you. But I can give it to you. Or, or, or if you lose it. You wake up in the morning. You can't remember which pair of jeans you were wearing yesterday. You've got your 75 cents hidden somewhere away in a drawer, never to be seen again. Have you guys all experienced this? But you don't freak out because you've got a million dollars in the bank. You're not, where's my 75 cents? Oh! No, you've got a million dollars in the bank. You and I have the inheritance of all creation coming to us. And we do not believe it. It is why we worry about our budgets every single day. It is. We have a father who says, I will provide for you perfectly what you need in any given moment. And should I not provide for you, that is to prove to you that my strength and my word is sufficient for you. You see, this rips off the facade of Christian comforts that we have in the United States where we find ourselves saying, do I really believe that my treasures are full up for all of eternity? Can I give generously because of that? Am I going to worry that I'm going to lose what is here? And if you're worrying, if you're worrying, that is simply the mark that you are focused only on this present world rather than the future world to come. And you don't believe, we don't believe as deeply as we can, as deeply as we should, that our treasures are laying up for us in heaven. They are there waiting for us. Take heed, Christians. Don't miss the opportunity to live generously, sacrificially in this world by false belief. Don't miss the opportunity. It's the twinkling of an eye. It's the twinkling of an eye. And then finally, we close with this this morning. The characteristics of this radical reorientation around the resurrection grant each of us, whether we're theological nerds or Fabio warrior covers on romance novels, radical courage. Radical 
radical reorientation around the resurrection of Jesus grants us this week the opportunity to live with a radical sacrifice, servant-heartedly, utterly satisfied in ridiculous ways, sacrificing our comforts and our cares and our worries and our concerns and our, our reputations to be fools for the glory of Jesus Christ and the life to come. And then thirdly and finally, living in light of the resurrection gives us a notion or a way of living that is filled with radical repentance. I know that sounds religious to some of you, but let me explain. We now live radically repentant on a daily basis. Notice what Paul says here to the Ephesians. He says, uh, latter half of verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let's party, man. That's what Paul says. And, and I agree with him 100%. If there is no eternal life, we should be getting hammered on Sunday mornings rather than sitting here with the Bibles open. If there is no eternal life, there is no way we should be monogamous to our spouses. I'm just being frank. I'm just being biblically honest. If there's nothing after this, and this is all there is, we should pursue every pleasure that we possibly can. We should eat Drink and be merry because when it's all said and done, I hope I didn't waste my life being some sort of religious moralist just to go into the grave to be eaten by worms. What a waste. Paul goes on here and he quotes uh, a pagan uh, play of the day written by a very famous screenwriter of the day. He says, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Paul says to the Corinthian church, look, if you're of that population of people that all there is in this world, and you're listening to the mantra of eat, drink, and be merry, which is what our advertisements, it's what we swim in culturally, it's get what you can for you right now, it's all about you, it's about your, per, your, your current pleasure, we swim in that as, as Christians, Paul says it's corrupting, but then he says the resurrection is real, so he says wake up from the drunken stupors, as is right. And don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul essentially says, living radically reoriented around the resurrection reminds us that every choice we make here has repercussions all through eternity and all through this world. And so living in light of the resurrection is why we do exercise restraint. And in exercising restraint from the current fading pleasures, we actually experience true pleasure, eternal joy, the meaning of relationships, the meaning of good food that will pass away. We experience the meaning of all these present things in expectation of the future glories of it in accordance with God's will. Radical repentance is not to gain God's favor. Oh, I hope I've repented enough so that God loves me and will help me. No, radical repentance just reminds us of the relationship that we're already in with God, where he has accepted us and granted us eternal pleasures in relationship with him. Radical repentance brings us into right relationship with God, reminding us that in him we have all we need. Ray Ortland pastor friend of mine wrote an amazing commentary on the book of Isaiah. That quote there, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, is actually a quote from the nation of Israel, Isaiah chapter 28. And Ray wrote in his commentary on Isaiah, he said, without a sense of God in their hearts, even the people of God are reduced to just visceral drivenness. That's the extent of their vision. They no longer live for the end, they can only live for the weekend. In Psalm 73, as we wrap up this last point, we have the process of what radical repentance looks like. 
Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms because I feel like I spoke it. I feel like for years I spoke Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is written by a man named Asaph. And Asaph looks out on the world and he sees all the He sees all the spring break madness and the kids are partying out on the beach. And he sees shady financial decisions being made by the businessmen as they climb the corporate ladder, as the Wall Street coffers fill and fill and fill. And he looks out on it and he says, I'm restraining myself. I'm living rightly before Yahweh, before God. I'm living according to a solid moral code where I'm generous and I give and I seek to, to serve and to sacrifice. And Asaph is honest enough to say, it's difficult, I don't like it, and when I look out on the world and I see the kids partying down in Florida at spring break, and I see the businessmen with their shady business tactics, and I see the richness, and I see the, the fun, the, he, he literally says, they're, they're just a bunch of fatties getting fatter, is my Hebrew paraphrase. And he says, all, he's basically saying is, look, man, I'm eating kale, and they're eating donuts, and they're just having a good time, and all I want is some donuts. That's what, that's what Asaph is saying. He goes on, and he says, I almost reached a point where I told God's people, this is a joke. Like, Asaph gets real raw, right in the middle of the psalm. He gets right up there where all this burning in his heart, all this bitterness, all this frustration, he's just like, oh, oh. He says, I almost stood up in front of God's people. I was acting like a beast, he says. It's interesting. Asaph says, I lost my humanness in longing to cast off restraint. Is that not interesting? He says, I was acting like a beast, and I reached a point where I almost wanted to tell everybody, guys, this is baloney. Ten Commandments, Yahweh, Exodus, the long story of Israel, moral code, baloney. I'm done. But then Asaph says, I got right to the edge there, and I realized that I would lose something that I don't want to lose. And so I went to church instead, he says. I went to the sanctuary. And there in the sanctuary, Asaph began to worship Yahweh, to worship God, to repent. He turned his eyes from the party and kids Down at Fort Lauderdale, he turned his eyes from the shady businessmen. He turned his eyes from the greed, from the fatty fatties, from all of the advertisements that were telling him, you've got to have what you have right now. He turned his eyes from all the unrestraint that humanity practices, and he went in and he experienced eternity in the midst of worship. I I have to read this to you. I know I wanted to be sub 40 today. I'm trying so hard. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73. There's just nothing sweeter in the ears of my soul than to hear your Bibles turning. Psalm 73, and let me read this, let me read this passage to you, please. Or turn in your phones and try to make like a little swishy sound so, I, so, it sounds like, so it sounds like you're actually having real Bibles on your laps. Stupid technology. <laughs> I can tell I'm 40, huh? I'm getting older. Kids and these technologies these days, man. Let's pick up in verse 23 of Psalm 73. This is the process of radical repentance that brings relationship that's so sweet and so full. And it's what you're invited to this week, Taproot. Asaph's been griping and complaining. He says, I was like a beast. I lost my humanness and casting off restraint. I just wanted to tell the church, this is stupid. Why are we being moral? Why are we staying monogamous? Why don't we just lie, kill, cheat still, do like everybody else is doing and get ahead in the world? Why don't we do it? And he says, I go into the, I go into the sanctuary and I start worshiping God I start singing songs with my family around me. I lift my eyes up there, and then he says in verse 23, 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Listen to what Asaph says, this repentance that brings such beautiful, intimate relationship. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What a sweet, content place to come to, Christian. To say, in my radical repentance, I'm no fool to give up everything that I could never keep, to gain everything that I'll never lose, namely God. Intimacy with God, a sense of his presence, to go out and hear the spring songs of the birds and the trees and experience that as my father's delighting song over me. I've got what I need today, Asaph says. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, he says. And then he, he gets honest. He gets real. He's like Paul. He's got enough courage to face himself. And he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He had enough courage to say, I know I may go down for the count. I know I'm going to act like a coward sometimes. I know I'm going to get really bitter sometimes. I'm going to be like, you know what? You know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. Everybody... But at the end of the day, God is my strength. God is my portion. Behold, he says in verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. How can this be the case this morning? It is because one who was radically courageous beyond what any of us could ever be came to us. Jesus Christ made the ultimate and radical sacrifices by leaving the comforts and the glories and the treasures of the eternal dance with his Father and the Spirit. And he said, I will be radically courageous and be sent into the world. I will don sacrificially the garments of humanity. I will live with them. I will go be with courageously and sacrificially the untouchables, the blind, the lame, the divorced, the gay, the addicted, the molested. I'm going to go into the midst of them with courage and sacrifice so that they can see my love for them. Jesus, though he had a moment Father, please let this cup, this cup of your turning away from me, this cup of you not being my portion, this cup of losing communion with you, Jesus cried out in the garden of Gethsemane, please let this cup pass. Please don't make me drink this. I don't want to lose touch with you. I don't want to lose communion with you. You are my portion. You are satisfying. I will do it, though. Your will be done. And so with ultimate courage, because we are cowards, our hero, our true hero, went to the cross to drink the cup that we could not drink. To make the sacrifice that we should have been sacrificed on. We should have died. We should have been separated. God the Father should say to us, I will never be your portion. You have pushed me away, rebelled against me, filled up your cups with the silly little trifles of a word, world that is burning to nothing. Why should I? And instead, what God the Father says is, I will give all of myself to you in the Son because he radically sacrificed himself in your place. 
and then he resurrected. He's alive. And when he came forth from the grave, he didn't say to Mary and the women, see, I told you, now get it right. I've done all of this. Make sure you get super religious. Make sure that you fit all. No, what he did with Mary and those scared first century disciples is he said their names. Mary doesn't recognize him. I think you're the gardener we see there in John chapter 20. And what Jesus says to her, the resurrected Jesus says to her is, Mary, I know you. I know how fearful you are. I know how hard this is. But I've gone through it for you. So I know you. Come be with me. I'm your portion. Thomas, come here, buddy. I know how much you doubt. Put your fingers right here in, in my side. Cephas, Peter, feed my sheep. The ultimate in cowardice. I don't know him. Peter says, I got nothing to do with him. Some crazy peasant carpenter from Galilee. Kill him, Peter says. A little girl looks at Peter. Hey, 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 I know you were walking with him. Are you kidding me? You're nuts. And the rooster crows, and Jesus' promise that Peter would deny him three times is fulfilled. He dies. He dies the death of a coward. Jesus dies the death of a scoundrel because Peter was a scoundrel, and he takes it upon himself, and he goes into a grave, and when he rises from the grave, He doesn't come to Peter saying, now you better get this right. I had to go through all that for you. No, what he says to Peter is, Peter, do you love me? And Peter is so broken. He's finally got resurrection courage. He says, Jesus, you know my heart. (laughs) You know what I want. He says, Pete, listen, I'm going to get deep down into your soul. Are you more in love with me than these? Maybe he's referring to the fish. Maybe he's referring to ministry. Maybe he's just referring to the these things of the world. And Peter's honest. He's like, Lord, 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 Lord. I, did not, I, I don't even trust my own heart anymore. You know me. And what Jesus says is he says, now I want you to go and feed my sheep. I want you to go be courageous. Peter would be crucified upside down. This religious nerd, Paul, would have his head cut off in a prison. Our brothers and sisters through history would be burned on stakes, torn apart by lions. Right now, in this world today, my brother literally is having to face his daughter's arms being cut off by someone with a sword. And we with Asaph can say, you are my portion. You are enough, God. You are all I need. And so I can be radically courageous and radically sacrificial and daily I will radically repent coming into the sanctuary where you are my strength you are enough Father the gospel so transforms us and so changes us it gives to us that which we could never gain ourselves it assures us of a life that we could never give to ourselves, and so for for us as a church, I want to live radically reoriented around the resurrection. I thank you that this morning, none of us have to come with fear that you're going to cast us aside, that that you're upset with us because of our doubt, because of our worry. 
You help us to courageously face ourselves in the midst of communion. You help us to, you help us to come and, and be radically transformed and satisfied with the blood of Jesus being our atoning presence. We're satisfied in it. And so today, as we partake of communion as a family, oh God, may we experience what Asaph experienced, to come into the presence of God and be satisfied with eternal realities and cast off our, our worldly restraints in the sense of restraining, trying to protect comforts and protect reputation and protect all these things that are going to be gone in the twinkling of an eye. And may we be radical fools for you, radically raised by you in power and strength. And so we just exalt you now, and we entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name.